as we come to the book of Revelation again this morning. Um, just two things, uh, those of you who asked for extra notes, um, I have photocopied a few extra on the different views uh, on the last things, so I think I've made ten copies at the back there, help yourselves. And then I've also put a little book uh, on the back table, oh sorry, the entrance table, uh, it's called From the Resurrection to His Return, Living Faithfully in the Last Days. It's a little thin little book like this, not going to take much to read it, but Dynamite, and written by Don Carson. So help yourself to those. If you want to make a little contribution towards Waka, please mark it on an envelope. My heart is for Waka now. So anything that comes in, Waka. Alright? So this is Dynamite. If you want to take a little book, I think there are about five of them. Help yourselves. Um, really good to read. Let's just turn to God's Word this morning and we're in the book of Revelation as we start out on this exciting journey. Thank you to Michael for last week uh, starting us off in this book, Revelation chapter 1 and we're going to be reading from verse 4 to 8 this morning. Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 to 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce them, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Imagine my surprise one day when um, I got my mail and um, I received an envelope and it said, Office of the Prime Minister. And my name was on it. And uh, even on the front it's written, On Her Majesty's Service. I thought, wow, this must be important. And I opened it up and uh, guess who was it was from? Any, any ideas? Helen Clark. So there it is. I should keep this. It might be valuable one day. But there was a letter from Helen Clark and she was responding to an issue I'd put to one of her ministers. But I was surprised to get a letter from the Prime Minister of a country. It's not often you get that. I read every single word on that page a few times and then I told Alice and I told quite a few people. I was quite excited really. Imagine if you got an email or a letter or a text from God and I say this reverently now. Imagine. You switch on and God is speaking to you. The God of the universe. I think excited is a word that wouldn't, would be too small, wouldn't it? You'd read every single word and then you'd tell every single person on your address book. God has contacted me. 
Amazing, don't you think? But the fact is, He has written to us. We've just read part of the letter to us. It didn't come in text form. It didn't come in letter form like this in an envelope, but it came in His Word. And it's addressed from God through the Apostle John and via the seven churches, but it's a letter from God to you and I. Is there the same excitement about us? That reading this letter to mankind. And, and as we saw in verse 3, Blessed is anyone who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so if we take this letter from the Lord, we take it seriously, then God will bless us, this letter from Him. Well, let's see what God says to us. He wrote this letter to go via the Apostle John, as we saw last week, and via the seven churches. And those would, would have been the actual churches in the province of Asia, then in Roman times, but also wider to the, to the rest of the churches, not just those seven, but to the rest of the churches that were in existence. As this letter was circulated around the various churches, they would read it aloud and then it would pass on to the next one and the next one until all the churches had received this letter. And so this letter has passed down the centuries and here it has reached us in Whanganui in the year 2017, in the month of August. We are reading his letter. There's your first contact with the number seven. And we need to know about the number seven in Revelation. The number seven always has to do with perfection or completeness. And so he sends his letter to the seven churches, which tells us it's not just those seven physical churches, but to the church universal, to all churches after those initial ones. And that's why you and I are included here, if we call ourselves part of this church. And so this letter is to us and we need to pay attention. And so this letter brings us greetings from the Trinity. Think about that. Greetings from the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Apostle John says to us. Now we need to know a little bit about letters those days. These days, I had to, when I got my letter from Helen Clark, I had to read to the bottom to see who it was, right? In those days, they used to put the name at the top. It's kind of logical, isn't it? This letter is from John. And then you, oh, okay, it's John. And now you read what he says. It's a bit Irish, our way of doing it. But John greets them in the name that he, in, in the way that they'd always write letters those days. And the Apostle Paul uh, also wrote this way. If you want to quickly flick to Romans chapter 1, verse 7, um, he often started all his letters like this. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, Paul a servant. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a, a common way of writing the name and then using these two words, grace and peace to you. Now those aren't just sincerely yours, just glibly put. Grace and peace to you, deliberately put there. What is grace? Grace is God's free gift of love. Listen carefully. There's a difference between grace and mercy. God's grace is His free gift of love towards you and I when we deserve the opposite. 
and when there was nothing we could do about our own predicament, God showed us love. That is grace. Grace and peace to you. What is peace? Peace is also the gift of God, Galatians 5, which results in a quietness of spirit which rises above our circumstances. And so this grace and peace is gifted to us by the Father, it's given out by the Holy Spirit and it's made possible through Jesus Christ. You see how the Trinity is involved? Grace and peace, says our letter, given to you by the Father, given out by the Holy Spirit and made possible by Jesus Christ. So the Trinity greets you. The Father greets us, Him who is and was and is to come, says our text. This is referring to God in time and in space. You see, God revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am the self-existing and the eternal one, the source of all existence. I am the one who has always been present. The one who is now present with you and the one who will always be present in the future. Without this truth, right at the beginning of this letter, there would be no hope for the future for us. So right in those words, we can already get inspiration and we can already push on in life because God's grace and His peace is with us as believers. Do you believe Him? Do you believe His letter to you this morning? His grace. His free gift is with you. His peace, which rises above your circumstances, is with you. Be encouraged. Without God, nothing. What's the motto of our city? Without God, nothing. That's what this truth comes down to. But there's not just greetings from the Father this morning, there are greetings from the Spirit from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now, we're in Revelation, so you need to keep your wits about you. Again, the number seven. And this is taken from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. If you want to flick there as well, there's a reference there to the seven spirits. And it's in slightly different form. He speaks about a lampstand with seven lamps and seven pairs of, of lips on these lamps. And then he explains this to Zechariah. And he says, God says, it is the eyes of the Lord which roam the earth. And that's where this number seven in the seven spirits comes from. It's a reference to the Old Testament. And we'll often find references to the Old Testament in this book of Revelation. But there's one of those references. The eyes of the Lord roaming throughout the earth, seeing everything. The all-seeing God, His Spirit perfectly expressed in the, second, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And where is the Spirit? He is before God's throne. You see, the Spirit is present there with the Trinity because He's part of the Trinity. He is there with the Father and the Son. It's the same Holy Spirit who intercedes for you and I from God's throne, says Romans chapter 8, verse 26. There He is before the throne, and when we pray, the Holy Spirit is there before the throne of the Father and He takes our prayers and He puts them 
before the Father. The Son makes it happen. And God answers our prayers. Amazing, isn't it? Greetings from the Spirit too. The seven spirits who are before the throne of God. And that's not all. And John swaps the order. Because usually it's the first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity is the Son, and then the third person of the Trinity. But here, because John is going to major on the second person of the Trinity right throughout the book of Revelation, he speaks to us about the Son last. He says, greetings to you too from the Son, Jesus Christ. A very specific name given to us here. Why? Because there is no other. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christos, the only one. He greets you too. He is going to be the theme of the book of Revelation. And so John brings us this description of the Son. He doesn't just say, greetings from the Son, but He who is the faithful witness. Look at these characteristics that John highlights for us. The Son is the faithful witness. Didn't Jesus say to Pilate, John chapter 18, Pilate, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Isn't that what Jesus did with his whole life? He didn't just teach about the truth. He lived the truth of who God was. And who God is to people. So that they could learn from Him. So that they could take this truth and believe it and be saved. He was the perfect witness. God speaking about God. There could be no error in His witness. And more than that, Jesus is also an eyewitness of who God was. Why? Because He claimed to have been before the Father. John chapter 8 verse 38 says this, I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my Father. So he is an eyewitness of the Father too. The perfect witness. Jesus, the faithful witness, greets you. And not just that, there's a second element here. He's the firstborn of the dead. Now if you've been a believer here for a long time, none of this will be new. But you know, we need to re-hear these truths. When Conrad was speaking this past weekend on the five solas of Scripture and he came to our salvation is through Christ alone and he spelt out what that meant. My heart leapt in me. I didn't know whether I had to laugh or cry or stand up and shout. But the Holy Spirit needs to make these things alive in us again. And so when you hear this, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, I pray that it would make your heart leap. Why? What did Jesus do for you and I? He's the conqueror of death. One person got it. He's the conqueror of death. He's the firstborn of the dead. The Greek word is the protokos. Meaning not first in time sequence as firstborn from the dead, but first in importance. First in preeminence. There were many other resurrections. The Old Testament tells us Elijah raised the son of the widow and many others. Christ raised Lazarus. So he can't be the firstborn of the dead, but he is the firstborn in importance. How do we know that? Not just from the facts of history, but rather from Scripture. Psalm 89 verse 27. What does God say about his own son? God said, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the king's 
of the earth. He is the firstborn of the dead, the preeminent one. And what does Revelation do? Revelation goes and unfolds for us how this is true for us, right throughout history and into eternity, how Christ is the preeminent one, the one who set the pattern for the resurrection of all believers. He was the first to be raised and to make it possible for us to be raised. None of the others who were raised from the dead made it possible for you and I to be raised from the dead again. But Christ, when He was raised from the dead, He made it possible for you and I to also be raised from the the dead. It was because of His conquering of death that we too, when our eyes close in death, open them, and there we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. Are you encouraged by that? Christ is the preeminent one, the firstborn of the dead. And here's the glorious truth of this. When Christians die, be it from a natural death or from martyrdom, as many are in the world now, in our present history, when we die, our death, a Christian's death might be a defeat in the eyes of the world. Ha! We got rid of them. But in the eyes of the Lord, what is it? God applies Christ's victory as the firstborn of the dead to those who die in and for Him. And so when we die, Christ applies, God applies the death of Christ and His resurrection on our lives and He raises us up. Do you get that truth? It's because of Christ's death and resurrection that we are raised as well. And so you are alive because of this one, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, says the Apostle John, he's not just the faithful witness, he's not just the firstborn of the dead, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the king of kings. Christ is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of this world and He holds the title deed of this world. It's the kingdom of darkness and Satan is over the kingdom of darkness but God is in ultimate control. Christ owns this world. Don't let anyone and don't let Satan tell you that there is no hope. Christ owns this world. He is in control. He is the absolutely sovereign one over all the affairs of the world. Every single thing that happens, He knows. He is there. And to John's first hearers, when they heard this letter being read to them in those churches, Roman imperial power might have seemed overwhelming to them and it might have seemed terrifying as they heard the news of believers who were being martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. But knowing that Christ is the Sovereign One, the King of Kings, would have brought them strength. And it should bring you and I strength too, as we read that Christ's power is infinitely greater than anyone or anything on this world. He is the Sovereign One. He holds the name above every name, says Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Take note of that word every. Every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. There is no power greater than Jesus Christ. Now you might have heard that before, but there might be some sitting here who've never heard that. There is no one and nothing greater than Jesus Christ. His word says, He is the preeminent, He is the Almighty God. He is Jesus the Messiah. He is Lord. What amazing truths. Yes? And so no wonder that John breaks out into a doxology of praise, verses 5 to 7. And it's all about Jesus. He's, he's put this truth to his readers and now his own souls are overcome and he just writes this down under the inspiration of the Spirit. To him who loves us, to him who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, has made us priests, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's just overcome by this. To him who loves us. And the word he uses here is the word for loving us now. It's a continuous love. To him who is always loving us now with an unbreakable love, says Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Who? And Paul lists various things which could separate us, but which can't. He is the one who is, has unbreakable and continuous love for you and I. To him who loves us. And what else has this loving Lord done? He has freed us from our sins by his blood. And these are themes that are going to often come out in Revelation. The themes of redemption, atonement. I'll explain these now if you don't know what those are. Redemption, atonement, righteousness. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. That word freed means He has cut us loose. He has loosened us. And He has released us from. Think about that. There we were caught in our sins, dying forever, and Christ came on, and He came into our lives, and what did He do with our sins? He cut them loose from us. He loosened them from us, He took them away from us, and they were put on Him. And how did He do that? He did that by His blood. He paid the ransom price for sin. He paid the penalty of sin, which is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death under God's wrath. He paid that price of sin. That's called redemption. He freed us from our bondage of sin and He paid for it. And how did He do that? He did that by His blood. Atonement. His blood flowed in the place of our sin. A sacrifice was made. Blood was put on the altar. And it was the blood of the Son of Man for you and me. Our sin was placed on Christ. Think of that. Every sin, if you're a believer, every sin that you have ever committed and will ever commit has been placed on Jesus Christ. One day when you stand before God, He will not see one single sin in you. Why? Because He will see His son, His sinless Son who's carried your sin. 
your sin is gone. There is nothing in your past that needs to hold you back or hold you down. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He has taken it from you. It has been imputed to Him. There's a big word, you don't need to know what it means. It's been put on Him by God. Imputed. So why do you keep coming back to it? Christ has freed you from your sin. If you haven't yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He says to you, you can come to me and I will take your sin too because I have died and I will take everything that you've done and I will take the state that you are before me. You're a rebel who is lost without me. I will take your sins on me because my love is sufficient for all your sin. Come to me and bow the knee and I will take away your sin and give you life instead. And you will live eternally. The invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ is there for you too. Because He has died, His blood has been shed. And that's not all, there's more to this you see. Once our sin has been taken from us, God the Father looks at us and He makes a legal declaration over our lives. He says, you, because of my sin, because of the the sin that my Son has died for, for you, you are now right with me. I legally declare you righteous. It's a legal statement over our lives. And so He has freed us from our sins, He's paid for those sins, and God now says, when I look at you, I see my Son. You are free in Jesus Christ. Do you see why John is being overcome by all these things? And that's not all, there's more here this morning. He hasn't just saved us and now we kind of wait. He has made us a kingdom. What is that? You see, the Apostle Paul writes about it in Ephesians. He says, we were once without hope and without God in the world. But then God intervenes. And now we are not a lost people. We are in Christ. We are His people. He has made us, us part of His kingdom. There's a bigger body of us. It's not just Wanganui East and Central and Riverside in Wanganui. There is a whole body of believers out in the world, those who have died, those who will come after us if the Lord doesn't come. We make up the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's a big picture here. And so when you're going through whatever you're going through your life, there are others going through things too because His kingdom is made up of believers who struggle and who look to Christ and find freedom in Him. There's a big picture. And that is why one day, when we stand before the throne, and we'll get to those pictures, I won't do it now, there'll be this massive throng of millions upon millions upon millions of those clothed in white robes, the white robes of having been saved by Jesus Christ, and we will all sing about this great Saviour who made us His kingdom and and the kingdom which is eternal. Yes, are you going to be part of that massive throng? And we'll be singing beautiful songs of praise to our God. Songs that we haven't even learnt on this earth. We will be doing quick sight reading there in heaven, but God will put it in our hearts and we will be singing His praises with the angels, with the angelic beings. Part of a big kingdom, isn't it? He has made us His kingdom. 
And that's not all. He has made us priests to His God and Father, says the Apostle John. What does that mean? You see, usually priesthood was kind of limited to Israel and some of those who would serve in the temple. But when Jesus Christ came, He made us priests to God and His Father. Priesthood is now applicable to believers collectively. That is, you and I, believers who God calls the church. And what does He do for us? He gives us an intimate access to the Father so that we can turn around from there and serve Him in the world. We are priests. What did priests do in the temple? They served others. You and I are priests in the kingdom of God. And we do it for our Father. So what is our response to be? It should also be, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yes? There is life. To Him be glory. That should be the song of our lives, right? To Him be dominion, rulership forever and ever. Amen. I hope that is a cry on your life too. But note, John isn't finished. You see, there's more in this letter from God. And immediately after this doxology of praise, he's straight into it. Behold! Here's another announcement. In light of everything that Jesus Christ has done, behold, He is coming with the clouds. Are you ready for this great King, He says. This One who has done so much for you. He is coming with the clouds. Just as the angels said when Jesus ascended into heaven to those amazed disciples who were standing there staring up into the sky, the angels said to them, just as He went, He is going to come back. And John picks up on that theme. He is coming with the clouds. Clouds had to do with holiness in the temple. Mist in the temple, clouds. Holiness, the holiness of God. And here's the first prophecy in the book of Revelation. He is coming with the clouds. We're going to have a few of these prophecies come up. And if you're a believer, that is an amazing thing to hear and it's very encouraging, right? And when the people heard this in this letter to them, they would have been buoyed up by this. Because this great Jesus Christ has done all this for us. He is coming again for us. We are going to go with Him into heaven and to eternity. But, says the Apostle John, He is coming. And he uses the term there, which is already on His way. That's the word there that's used. When he uses the word coming, it is in the sense of He's already on His way coming. What's he saying? His coming is imminent. There's urgency in this. In other words, are you ready for his coming? He is coming. It's certain. But are you ready? You see, many then scoffed and denied the second coming. Many of those people who persecuted the early believers scoffed at the second coming. The Apostle Peter, and we looked at this previously, and I won't go there now, Second Peter 3 spoke about those who will say, How can you say that Christ is coming? Isn't life just carrying on as normal? They scoff. And there are many today who do the same. They scoff when we speak about Christ is coming again. But you know the Bible repeatedly affirms that Jesus is coming again. There are over 500 specific verses in the Bible. When I saw that, 500 
verses speaking about Christ's second coming. That's a lot. The Bible repeatedly says He will return. And here again we get it this morning. But do you believe that word? John says, every eye will see Him when He returns on the clouds. Every eye, that's the whole human race. And whether they've died before, or whether they're still living that moment when Christ appears, every single eye will see Christ when He returns. The hope of all believers. But, unfortunately, for those who pierced Him, they will see Him too. What does He mean here? Those who physically put Him on the cross, yes, they're going to suddenly wake up to, it's Him. We put Him on the cross. We thought He was gone. We thought there was the end of Him. Here He is. But He's changed. He's coming in glory. They're going to see Him, even those who pierce Him today by their unbelief, by crucifying Christ and not believing Him. And there'll be consternation among His enemies at His reappearance. And even those unbelieving Jews and those who nailed Him to the cross and thought He was dead, Every eye will see him, even the deniers today. That's what John says. And that's not all. He says, all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Now that's kind of strange. Why will they wail on account of him? And the word used here of wail is to beat the breast. And that was when um, people died in those old days. They used to show their remorse by physically hitting themselves. Why would they have remorse? Is it about because they didn't believe? No. It's not because they didn't believe when they could. The Bible tells us something else. And you might not have known this. Look at Revelation chapter 16. And I'll give you two instances here. Revelation chapter 16, verse 8 to 9. This is what Scripture says. When they see, when sinners see the Son of Man coming again, they will not think, I should have believed. And there will be remorse. And why didn't I believe? That's not it. They're going to hate God more intensely because of what He's putting them through. And the remorse is for themselves and their own doom. Scripture says that to us. Revelation chapter 16, verse 8. Look at this. And we'll get to these things later again. The fourth angel, verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun and it... it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. Look at this reaction now. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. There's going to be no coming to the Lord when He returns. People will be mourning for their own futures. They will hate God even more. That's the nature of sin. Sin does not drive you to God. Sin drives you very far away from God. It never takes you to God. That's why you need a Saviour. He needs to take that out of you, loosen that sin from you, and put a clean heart, a new heart, which points to Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer on that day, you will not mourn for Christ. You will be weeping in rage and gnashing your teeth that this is what He is putting you through there will be no turning to Him. Verse 11, People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, yet they did not repent of their deeds. 
there's a warning to us. He is coming. Are you ready for Him? And then John ends that passage. Even so, he says, so it will happen. Amen. And then verse 8. This is amazing for me. You know, when I received the letter, on the front over here it said, Minister's office and us taxpayers paid for the stamp to, for the letter to get to me. Alright? And on the front it said, Office of the Prime Minister. And on the letter, um, my dear friend Helen Clark had written, Helen Clark, Prime Minister. So now I know who she was. And, um, when God signs off on this letter, remember it's right at the beginning, He puts His seal there. Remember the old days? Some of you are a bit might remember this, alright? Um, when, when you wrote a letter, they'd drop, drop seal wax, sealing wax on it and then you would take your big ring with your family coat of arms and you go, Tsh! so that everyone who saw that knew it's from Calvin. His honour. Calvin. Well, in a way, that's what the Lord does here. He puts His seal on what has just been said. This letter is from John to the churches, but it is from the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last in the Greek letters that they could understand. No other letters exist outside Alpha and Omega in the Greek alphabet. I am the one who is first and last. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, says the Lord God, the Almighty one, the ruling one, the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one. What John has said, I will make come to pass the zeal of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies will accomplish this, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7, the same God speaking. He seals this letter which we are going to open up. It's from God Himself. And therefore, as we read this letter and as we study this book, take courage. Your enemy cannot destroy your Christ. The one who is fully equal in power to the Father and the Son. He is your Christ. If you are a believer here today, and doesn't matter what your circumstances bring, Christ is more powerful. He is with you. He is in you through His Spirit. And the Father watches over you. To Him be glory Forever and ever. I'm not at Amen yet. This is a letter to you. So what are we going to do with it? Jesus writes to you and I, will we take this letter to heart as we study these books, this book? I pray that He will save us from it being a theological exercise. I pray that God the Father through His Spirit will show us who the Son is in our hearts. We will take Him at His word. If He makes a promise, we will believe it. If He directs our lives, we will walk in that direction. We will take this book to heart. And if you do so, you will be ready for His return. If your heart is in a daily relationship with the Lord, then you will be ready for the return of your King. I want to close this morning by, with a quote from John Phillips who wrote a commentary called Exploring Revelation. And 
This is what he says. English history tells of the conquests and the crusades of Richard I, the Lionheart. While Richard was away fighting against Saladin, his kingdom fell on bad times. His sly and his graceless brother, John, usurped all the prerogatives of the king and misruled the realm. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of the king and praying that it might be soon. Then, one day, Richard came back. He landed in England, he marched straight for his throne and around that glittering coming many tales are told woven into the legends of England and one of those is the story of Robin Hood. And John's castles were tumbled like nine pins as Richard came into his kingdom. And this great Richard laid claim to his throne and none dared stand in his path. And the people responded by shouting their delight. They rang peal after peal on the bells of all the churches. The lion is back. The lion is back. Long live the king. One day, a king greater than Richard will lay claim to a realm greater than England. Those who have abused the earth and its peoples in his absence, those who have seized his domains and mismanaged his world and its peoples will all be swept aside. Only those who have loved his appearing, who love him and acknowledge him as their rightful king, will enjoy the blessings of his kingdom. Are you ready for the return of your king? He has written to you to tell you his coming. Are you ready? Amen. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, our God, the Almighty One, God, Son and Spirit, the Trinity, Lord, thank You that You have written to us through Your Word and that we can now read the, the words of that letter and know that that truth remains unchanging that your Son is indeed the one who frees us from our sin, the only Saviour of the world and the only way that we can see God. Thank you that your Spirit remains unchanging. You are still the one who works in us to make us see the Son for who He really is, the one who intercedes for us before the throne of God. Thank you, Lord, that we know that you've told us that you are coming again and that we can get ourselves ready for that great coming. Lord, I pray that all believers here will examine our lives and with your Spirit we will allow you to prepare us for the coming of the King of Kings. And Lord, may that translate into the way we live our daily lives. May we be faithful witnesses of the Kingdom of God in the way that people look at us, in the way that we react when circumstances turn against us, thank you that we know that you are the God of circumstances. Lord, may we be faithful to you. May we speak out and cry out about this kingdom which belongs to Jesus Christ. And may others see the difference in our lives and may they be drawn to the light of Jesus Christ, the one who can free them too from their sins. We ask this because you are the great almighty one, the one who was, is and is to come, the eternal one. 
And so in confidence, we ask this before your throne. Amen.